1 Corinthians 15, commonly called the resurrection chapter, for obvious reasons. Now, as I come to the end of this long letter, it's 16 chapters long, and uh, he's just beginning the 15th. I want all of us to focus on the gospel, the one that I preached to you, the one which you readily received, the one in which also you stand, the one by which also you are saved, that is if you hold the exact gospel I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. The gospel was the very first thing I talked to you about the very first time I came to Corinth, and it is this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. And he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared visibly, bodily, supernaturally to Cephas and to the twelve. Now, we come to the end of the life of Christ A through Z. Today, we're going to look at letters Y and Z, which stand for the resurrection and the ascension. So uh, we're going to focus on the fact that uh, a risen Savior is the one you want to look to for eternal life, and he is the only sure guide in the Christian life. Don't depend on preachers, teachers, friends, enemies, um, People Magazine, not even Oprah Winfrey. You, you're saved by Christ. You need to serve Christ and others as he frees you up to do that. So let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word. Very, very, very essential truth here today and also for those who protect and serve us, as is our custom. And uh, Steve, uh, would you pray for us in that direction? Yeah, as we finish the life of Christ today, we're going to go into a series of standalone, one-week topical studies about things like what you need to know about God and Islam and Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. So be aware of that. But Lord willing, weather permitting, at the end of March, we'll begin a study of the life of Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50. But first, let's warm up, make sure we're fully, have our capacity for abstract thought fully warmed up. So, what do you call a pig that does karate? It'd be a pork chop. <laughs> what do you call a bear with no teeth? That's a gummy bear, right? How do you, I, I like that. That sigh in the back, that's what Bill Shelton used to do. He used to, oh. <laughs> See, it, it's, it's hard to get the, those, those synapses flowing, you know, uh, so it's all working. How do you organize a space party? You got a planet. <laughs> Why didn't the skeleton go to the prom? Because he didn't have any body to dance with. He didn't have a body to dance with. We're looking at Y and Z. Yes, yeah, Jesus did rise from the dead as he predicted multiple times. And 40 days after the resurrection, what happened? He ascended back to heaven. We're going to call that Zap from Zion. So we're looking at the very uh, end of the alphabet here, life of Christ, A through Z. Real people, real places, real events. Letter A stands for angelic announcement of the supernormal pregnancy of John the Baptist, the supernatural pregnancy of the Lord Jesus, birth in Bethlehem according to the prophet uh, Micah 700 years before the Messiah was born in the city called the House of Bread, six miles south of Jerusalem. See, carpentry career, Jesus was a tecton, a worker in wood or stone 
the King James uses the more generic term carpenter, but he worked with his hands from age 12 to when he began his public ministry, which Luke says he was about 30 when that happened. D and E really start the ministry in earnest. D stands for dove descends at the Duncan, the baptism of Christ where his righteousness is declared by God the Father. E stands for enemy entices. Jesus does one-on-one spiritual combat with the ultimate spiritual enemy and demonstrates his perfect righteousness. F, after that dynamic of E, Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist is baptizing and attracts his first five followers, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They're all from the northern region, as is the Lord. So they go back home after a bit, and they're G. They are great guests at a wedding feast. What happened? They run out of refreshments, and Jesus turns water into wine. That's his first public miracle. First Passover in Jesus' ministry is associated with letter H, harsh house cleaning. After 2,000-plus years of prophecies to get the Jews ready for the Messiah to come the first time, the system is totally corrupt. It's spiritually bankrupt, and Jesus puts the money changers out of business for a day, harsh house cleaning. I, while in Jerusalem for that Passover, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, or rather Nicodemus comes to him by night, and there are probably several reasons for that. And this is a guy dedicated to the proposition because he's physically a Jew and has been a very righteous religious Jew. He's going to go to heaven when he dies, and Jesus says, unless you receive a whole new life, unless you receive a new birth by faith in me, that's where John 3.16 is found in that context, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Going back to his home area of Galilee from Jerusalem, Jesus goes right through the hated Samaritan area. No self-respecting Jew like Nicodemus would get anywhere near Samaria because they all had spiritual cooties and would rub off on you. But Jesus didn't accept that kind of prejudice and basically tells the woman at the well, Jay Jive at Jacob's well, she tries to get him distracted. He says, if you knew who it was who's talking to you, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water everlasting life. Well, you've heard Messiah is going to come. He's going to explain everything. What does Jesus say? He who speaks to you is he. I am the Messiah. Okay, Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, after the uh, inauguration of his public ministry, is handed the scroll in the synagogue service, reads Isaiah 61 about the spirit of the Lord's upon me to preach the gospel of the poor. A passage they would have known was a prophecy about the Savior that was going to come. And then Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I am the Messiah. And they try to kill him. They just can't believe the tecton thinks he's the Messiah. Can kick out. So the reason Jesus bumps into fishermen all the time is because his base of operation is not in Nazareth where he grew up and lived for most of his life, but it's lateral, location lateral to Capernaum, the fishing village. And we have almost 18 months of the great Galilean ministry, M and N. Uh, messages, marvelous messages, the Sermon on the Mount, both as discipleship truth and evangelistic truth, depending on who's listening. And then nature neutralized. Jesus does big sign miracles to validate his supernatural powers and who and what he is, which leads to what I call the Pike's Peak of the life of Christ. After 18 months of this, The people of Israel are looking to the religious leaders to tell us, who do you think he is? And they come after observing him, and they say, he's a satanically possessed false prophet. He might be the Antichrist, but he's not the Christ. You know, 
He does miracles, but they're done in satanic power. That's, that's what they're saying. After looking at him face to face, they totally, categorically, undeniably, unmistakably, totally repudiate and blaspheme him to his face. That's opposition offered. And immediately from that point, the whole tenor of the ministry changes. Rather than, let's get the word out widely to Israel, he now circles the wagons to prepare the disciples for what's going to happen after the crucifixion. And he tells these in Matthew 13, letter P, parables pronounce the basic spiritual dynamics of the period between right then and his second coming. Uh, all kinds of different uh, reactions to the word, all kinds of false uh, uh, isms that are going to grow up along with true Christianity, that kind of thing. So that's very important to notice. That changes everything. Then we go to Caesarea Philippi, which is 30 miles outside of Jewish territory for the first Christian ministry retreat. And Jesus, with the claim that he is a satanically possessed false prophet, ringing in the disciples' ears, he cue quizzical questions. He says, what's the Gallup poll saying about me now? Because we all know what the leadership's saying. And the good news is, Nobody's saying you're a satanically possessed false prophet. The average person doesn't believe you're that bad, but nobody thinks you're the Christ anymore either, right? And so he says, question two, who do you say that I am? I'm not asking about the man in the street. I'm saying you, Peter, James, and John. And for 11 of them, Peter hits the home run, speaks for them. He says, hey, we're still with you, bro. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, no doubt about it. So Peter makes some mistakes here and there. But bless his heart, he's got a heart of gold. R, reality revealed. Jesus has veiled his glory as one person, two natures, the God-man Savior, so he can experience the human condition. But now, after that incredible confession of Peter, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the top of Mount Hermon. We're going to see it very soon, 9,200-foot limestone slab there. The snow melt goes through that and gives you all the water in the Jordan River. And uh, he reveals himself at the Transfiguration event, uh, and two unexpected visitors show up, representing the Law and the Prophets. Moses and Elijah are interacting with Jesus about his departure, Luke, the Luke passage says. His departure, death, resurrection, and ascension. Yeah, Reality revealed. We get to the uh, December before the April crucifixion, and Jesus in Jerusalem for the Hanukkah, says, I and the Father are one. I'm exactly the same in essence as God the Father. I am deity in human form. And what did the Jewish people in Jerusalem try to do to him? Sign up, walk an aisle, get baptized. No, they tried to stone him. Stoning stopped. Now we're just a month or so away from the crucifixion, maybe closer than that. And Jesus returns to the area around Jerusalem. Very dangerous for him to be there. And he traumatizes the tomb of Lazarus. It's the seventh and final sign in the Gospel of John leading to our Lord's own resurrection. You, unusual upset. At the very beginning of his ministry, H, Jesus cleansed the temple. The system was corrupt when he got there. After three years of ministry, he's in and out of Jerusalem three or four times a year at least. System's still corrupt. Puts him out of business again. He'd have to be the Messiah to do this, and he is. But uh, I guess you could say Jesus was a complete failure. If you're going to use a business dynamic to compute Jesus' failure, uh, Jesus' ministry this time, you might come to that conclusion. It's blasphemous, it's incorrect, and I would not support that, pers- that proposition myself. But watch out for evaluating spiritual things based on physical business uh, kind of uh, criteria. 
The, just a few days before his crucifixion, he gives you a mini version of the book of Revelation emphasizing his ultimate triumph, vision of victory. He faces the cross in view of everything else that's going to happen after that. Um, you got to put it in a bigger perspective because some of the things that's going to face you in life are very painful and difficult to deal with. But you already knew that, right? Aren't you glad you came to church today? W, Thursday evening, just before he's arrested and then crucified the next day, we have washing and wisdom. Jesus washes the feet of the disciples who have already taken a bath. And he talks about if you take the bath of salvation, you don't need to take another bath again, but you need to let Jesus wash your feet. Confession, not redefinition and rationalization. We tend to do that to ourselves. Um, wisdom. The essence of the Christian life is not obeying rules. It's living out a relationship with your Savior, who's now your Lord and your best friend, by abiding in Christ. What's abiding in Christ? It's recognizing and responding from the heart to the Christ who has saved you. That's your motivation. That's your uh, desire. And that's how you live the Christian life, even on prom night. X and Y, expiatory execution. The expiate means to wipe clean. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He who knew no sin was a sin offering for us. And now today we're going to look at why, yes, yeah, Jesus did rise from the dead and he will ascend to heaven, zap from Zion 40 days later. Now our unofficial theme verse for this series has been John 1. In the beginning, the word Jesus already was. The word Jesus was with God the Father. They didn't create because they were lonely or needed us. And the word was God deity himself. He's not God the Father, but he's full deity. And through the virgin conception, virgin birth, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Uh, Right in the middle of that passage, I just cited John 1.1 and John 1.14. We have the first concerted gospel invitation in the book. Uh, He was in the world, and the world had been made through him. But the world, by and large, didn't know him, came into his own, the Jewish folks, Most of them didn't receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who walk an aisle, join a church, who believe in his name, active, receptive, trust. That word for believe is used 90 times, nine zero times in the Gospel of John as the pursuing everlasting life. Now, we come to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at verses 1 through 24 as we talk about why, yes, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. And we'll see a premise, a problem, and a proposition. So let's work off my paraphrase, 90% New American Standard, 10% paraphrase, and look and see what it says. First it says, in verses 1 through 11, the premise, the gospel is a specific message. It's not an adjective, it's a noun. It's truth essential truth about the person and work of Christ. Now, I come to the end of this long letter. First Corinthians is one of the longer books in the New Testament. I want all of us, Paul and the Corinthian readers, to focus on the gospel, the one that I preach to you, the one which you readily receive, the one in which you stand, uh, the one in which by which you are saved if you hold the gospel I preached and continue to preach to you unless you believed in vain. Drop down to verse 14. Interesting. We want to have contextual Bible reading until we're so comfortable reading our own theology in the text. We don't like it anymore. But believing in vain in this chapter is not pretending to believe, but not really believing. It's believing 
in Christ if Christ did not bodily rise from the dead. Okay? Believing in vain would be having an insufficient object of saving faith. How do I know that? Well, that's what he says in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, not if he's still dead, our preaching of the gospel is in vain, your faith is in vain, it's worthless. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, whereof all men must be pitied. Now realize the new atheists have nothing new to say, but they have a new attitude. They no longer say Christianity is wrong, they say Christianity is evil. It needs to be eliminated and needs to be marginalized and put out of business. That's what the new atheists were saying. And they don't believe in a resurrection. They're naturalists. So Paul's saying, hey, you know what? If their whole premise is right, they're right about us. But Paul says, hey, that ain't right. I've seen him. The apostles have seen him. He really did rise from the dead. That's a game changer. That changes everything. Go back to verse 3. The gospel he says to the Corinthians, was the very first thing I talked to you about, the very first time I came to Corinth. Now, when you read 1 Corinthians, you're reading about something Paul's writing while he's in Ephesus during the third missionary journey. But he's talking about the very first time he came to Corinth. And he did that about five years before in what we call the second missionary journey. Is Corinth a real city, Mike? You ever been there? It's a real place. To this day, the 6th century B.C. Temple of Apollo is one of the more primary uh, artifacts partially renovated on that site. Very pagan city, very immoral city. First thing Paul came the first time, first thing he said, first time he came to Corinth, was what any good Christian should say with any group that uh, has no place to, to go but up. Preach the gospel, preach Jesus, explain who Jesus is, what he did, how he's changed your life. Get to the cross and the resurrection. Now, I want you to notice this. So he says, look, I want to review the Gospels. The first thing we talked about, the first thing I said, and here's what it is. So this is a pretty good place to see where the Gospel is, since he says he's defining it here. It's Christ died for our sins, that's one thing. According to the Scriptures, that's the second thing. He was buried, that's the third thing. Raised on the third day, that's the fourth thing. According to the Scriptures, sixth thing. Peter to Cephas, sixth thing. No, there aren't seven or eight or six things. There's only two things. You've got Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day. That's the gospel, okay? Well, how about the according to Scripture stuff? Christ died for our sins. Let me give you two bases for believing that. The Old Testament Scripture says the Messiah would rise again. So that's all you need. But he was buried. He was a corpse. His body was room temperature. He was dead, graveyard dead, okay? Christ died for our sins as our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. And then on the third day, what happened? He was raised. And the scriptures, Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, 10, says the Messiah will come back alive again after they kill him. And he was seen multiple times in places. So remember that structure, Connie. The gospel's two things. It's the cross and the resurrection, right? The death of Christ for our sins, his supernatural, bodily, literal resurrection, which validates the eternal saving virtue of his death. That's very, very important. Please don't miss that. And look at this, he says, uh, and he was, he appeared, he was seen by Cephas, then the assembled apostles, then he appeared at least one time during that 40 day period between the resurrection and the ascension to 500 people at once. Probably that's the Matthew 28 Great Commission passage in Galilee where 500 people are there seeing the risen Christ speak. And then notice he says this, this is pretty cool. Second, I mean, excuse me, 1 Corinthians is written in like 56 
56 AD, right? So we're like 23 years after the crucifixion. He says, at one time he appeared in his resurrection body to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom are still alive. Okay, it's just 23 years later. So most of the eyewitnesses are still alive. You want to check that out. But some have fallen asleep. So that means soul sleep. It means the Jehovah's Witnesses are right about soul sleep, right? Sleep talks about the way the body of a dead believer looks. It looks like it's asleep. It's not talking about the soul. Absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. The body sleeps as it was, what it looks like. It's a euphemism for the death of a believer. Then he appeared to James, his half-brother, who would become the leader of the Jerusalem church. Then to all the apostles again. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now notice he says Christ died according to the scriptures. He was raised according to the scriptures. We're not talking about the New Testament scriptures here. We're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Although, at this point, we probably have Mark written. We may have Matthew written. They may have been um, circulated as far as Corinth at that point. Certainly cited quite often. Uh, they don't actually have copies. But we know that Paul's written Galatians and First and Second Thessalonians before this. And I guarantee you the Corinthians have First and Second Thessalonians because that's not that far away. And almost certainly Galatians too. So they should know about false gospels even though they're apparently playing with one. But the scriptures in the Old Testament quite emphatically talk about Jesus, the Messiah, will be the Lamb. He'll suffer for our sins as our substitute and he'll rise again. And you analyze all the prophecies in the Old Testament about who Jesus is. There's quite a lot there. There's quite a lot there. I had a discussion Tuesday night after uh, something I do on Tuesday nights uh, for three hours. But we have a ten-minute break in the middle. So it's not that bad. Um, you think taking a class like that is hard? Try teaching one. But uh, it's a lot harder. But um had a long discussion. Well... How were people in the Old Testament saved? What did they know? They didn't know anything about Jesus. Yeah, they did. Let me walk you through some of it. So sometimes we take this for granted, I think. But notice Paul puts himself at the end of the list because in Acts 9, in 35 AD, two years after the resurrection, Jesus, in a special appearance, appears to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting your church. Same thing, right? For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, based on his previous job experience as a Christian killer. Because when the other apostles were building the thing up for the first two years, I was tearing it down. Because I persecuted the church of God. That's not the church of God, Cleveland. That's a generic term for the church of Jesus Christ made of all believers of all generations, colors, countries, and cultures. And all denominations of born-again people. But by the grace of God, unmerited favor, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not without effect. I am now on the, the on the good side, scoring points for the team. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, because I'm playing catch-up, as it were. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach the same gospel. And so you believed. I know I gave you the clear gospel. And I know you well enough to believe as best I can that you really believe the clear gospel, and now you're fuzzing it up. And that's a big problem. So let's look at the problem, verses 12 through 19. The Corinthian believers, you won't believe anybody would do this in Christianity, even though American Christianity is full of it right now. The Corinthian believers, to be sophisticated and relevant to their culture, 
have allowed thinkers who denied the whole premise of the gospel that after Christ died for our sins, he was bodily resurrected. They're allowing people like that to influence their thinking. They've got to put the Bible in the context in which it was written. Look at Acts 17. Now, this is an event that took place in Athens during the missionary journey in which Paul started the church in Corinth, just down the road, not very far. But look at the way Greek thinkers thought about a bodily resurrection from the dead. Uh, we're cutting in the middle of something for time's sake, but look at verse 31. Paul's speaking in Athens, because God has fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness through a man, the God-man, whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by rising that man, raising that man from the dead. Now when they, the sophisticated thinkers in Athens, just down the road from Corinth, heard Paul make reference to the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we'll think more about that. We'll hear you more some other time, maybe. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom are Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, it's not cool to believe in a bodily resurrection then or now. Uh, that's fairy tale time. Some Greek thinkers didn't believe in any uh, soul life after death, but the majority of them believed that the soul continued to exist after death, but they did not believe in any bodily resurrection. They thought we were trapped in this walking corpse, and we need to get the soul out to really kind of experience reality. Now, if Christ is preached by Paul and by all the apostles as having been raised from the dead bodily resurrection as an absolute fact, and they know it's a fact because they saw him, how do some among you some people on the fringes may be having special Bible studies to supplement the pulpit ministry on Sunday mornings because you can't get that much out of that anyway. So let's have a special Bible study that's more sophisticated and doesn't insist on a bodily resurrection because we know that's a loser. That's a non-starter for most of our friends. We want to give them a gospel they're going to like, you know. Um, some among you, hopefully on the fringe, but they're, they're some influence, say that there is no resurrection from the dead. Think about it. If that is true, there's no resurrection, it's not possible, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching of the gospel, with the death and the resurrection of Christ, is vain, is worthless, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, if there is no such thing as bodily resurrection, not life after death per se, but bodily resurrection, Paul and the apostles are liars, and we're giving false witness about God because we're testifying against God by saying that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if the dead aren't raised. So don't play with that kind of poison. That's arsenic. That's playing with, uh, not fire, with an atomic bomb, spiritually speaking. Here's the bottom line. If the dead are not raised, there's no such thing as bodily resurrection. If God can't do that, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is vain. Faith is only as good as its object. There's nothing magic about faith. And the whole, you know, faith movement in charismatic circles, you have enough faith, God's got to do stuff. You push the right buttons, he's got to respond to you. Isn't the way it works, and it can't work. You're still in your sins if he has not risen from the dead. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone, they're done. If we've hoped, trusted in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. And again, 
The new atheists put us in that category, and that's why they see us. At least they're honest about it. Bertrand Russell, the 20th century's most famous atheist, was he loved Christians. He thought Christians were nice people. He'd like to have neighbors as Christians. He just thought we were wrong. Now we're being vilified by Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennert and all these great Sam Harris, these new atheists who have nothing new. They don't have any new arguments against the faith. They have a new attitude. We're not just wrong, we're dangerous, and we need to be put out of business, right? Those who have fallen asleep have perished. They don't have any existence. If we have fought, hope, trusted in Christ in this life only. This is not just a philosophy of life. This is truth about everlasting life. Now the proposition, look at verse 20 through 24. We've got the premise, the gospel is a specific message about the death and resurrection of Christ. The problem is, if you redefine it, it will not work. And the proposition is the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact and is an essential aspect of the saving power of the gospel for all who believe. But now the fact remains. Christ has been raised from the dead. I, Peter, he'd say, I've seen him. I know that. The apostles have seen him. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. That refers to the death of believers, right? Based on what the body looks like after death. And who in his time, and who in his time will themselves be resurrected? For since by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die physically, so also all in Christ will be made alive in a resurrection body. But each in his own order. And this is really cool here. Look at, he's putting, he's making a timeline here. This isn't everything he talk about, but he's saying the resurrection order is first Christ, the first fruits, was the first resurrected individual. After that, those who are Christ, his church, at his coming, that's the word parousia for the rapture. And then, after the rapture and end times, second advent, then comes the end. Jesus is going to come back, second advent, to end history on God's terms. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, who, when he has abolished all other rule and authority and power. So there's our baseline chart of prophecy based on the book of Revelation. So we're, we're right there. That's probably the most important part of the chart, isn't it? It dawned on me, I probably ought to put the, Put where we are. You know, you go to a map of a mall, it says you are here, and you gotta figure out where you are. So we're somewhere between the, the, uh, the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ and the rapture event, and I think we're probably right there. That's just me, Kitty, but I'm not setting a date, okay? We may be back there, but that's where we are. Now watch this. Paul says, talking about resurrection, you got first Christ, he's the first fruits, right? He shows you what it looks like. Then we have those who are Christ, his church, at the parousia in connection with the rapture. Behold, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, twinkling in the eye at the last trump, the Lord will descend with a shout, and those who have departed first will be resurrected, and then we'll be caught up to meet him in the air with our resurrection bodies. And then comes the end. What ends human history on God's terms? The second advent. And that's when we're going to see Old Testament tribulation Believers resurrected, Daniel 12 talks about after the glorious appearing of the Messiah to put down the bad guys, then the Old Testament saints will be resurrected. Man, you got to love that, don't you? Now, here's a couple things I want to mention in passing that directly or indirectly relate to the resurrection. We'll talk about three problems then and now. Uh, Paul takes one head on. 
But here's the problem. Christians, I'm putting that in quote, not regenerate, but they uh, go to a parachurch group or they go to some kind of organization and they think they're Christians. But beware of Christians, like apparently people on the fringes at Corinthian Bible Fellowship here, and others who embrace some of the ethical, moral teaching of Jesus, but who, one, deny supernatural aspects of the Christian faith, including the bodily resurrection, or Christians, quote-unquote, who embrace some of the ethical, moral, nice teachings of Christianity, but are trusting in their own goodness, merit, religious rituals, uh, believing they can earn their own salvation in whole or in part. Or Christians, quotes, who insist God is too loving to judge anyone, including Jesus on the cross. When they say that, they know they, they, they don't like substitutionary atoning theology because that's God being so upset at sin, he has to make Jesus pay for it. They don't believe he think he's too nice to do that. You know, isn't that what Jesus said? Go into all the world and be nice? He didn't say that? Oh my goodness. I gotta reread that. Uh, and it's funny though, these people who think God's too nice, too loving, too kind to judge anybody, to have any kind of rights or standards, usually will have a fudge factor. Ronald Reagan is sometimes in there. Donald Trump is in there for sure. Okay. Adolf Hitler. Those people will be in hell. But everybody else, including most of the child molesters, God's too nice to have any standards against that kind of stuff. My responses to that very briefly is, if, as Paul says, if Christ was not raised bodily from the dead, then our faith in him and the gospel is worthless. If we can save ourselves in whole or in part by our merit, then Christ died needlessly, which is what Paul emphasizes in Galatians. And God's justice is not pretty, but it's always preceded by God's grace. And in love, as the ultimate demonstration, uh, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, yeah, so he can justify us without denying his own justice and righteousness. Uh, for he made him who knew no sin, Jesus who committed no sin, to be a sin offering for us on the cross that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the gospel is daring to say Jesus paid it all on the cross. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The chastening for our eternal spiritual well-being fell on him, right? At the end of the atonement, he says, it is finished, paid in full, telestai. It's tattooed on somebody's arm over there as a walking visual aid. James gets in a lot of interesting conversations at checkout aisles with the, during the summer when he's got the telestai work in there. Um, and, you know, the essence of the gospel is, and you couldn't make it up, it's too good to be true, which is why he tells you to believe it, because without a lot of divine help, you're not going to. Uh, because Christ died for Sonia, Heidler, Skinner's sins, Sonia's not going to have to die in her sins. And that, that's, that's why we call it good news. I mean, that is really, really good news. But he's not dead anymore. Can the good news get any gooder? Yeah. That's the first part of good news. Then it gets gooder. He ain't dead anymore. He really did come out the other side. That's yes. Is that awesome? Nobody's got anything like that. Don't water it down. If it offends somebody, don't be needlessly offensive. Like I get a little sarcastic sometimes, and uh, it's my fault. But uh, it's it's too good not to be excited about. It's too good not to share. Um, don't assume anything about anybody anymore. It's not that I don't trust any individual. I don't trust anybody anymore. I have no idea where they're coming from. It'll break your heart, man. Uh, that's why. 
Let's go to Z, Zap from Zion. Little fudge, fix, uh, fudge factor there. How can the ascension uh, be signified by the letter Z? Well, because I needed something with Z, and that's the best thing I could think of, right? Um, yeah, so crude drawing. This is just me with paint. I should have gotten this to Anthony. He would have made it look nice. Three days after the death of Christ, what happens? The literal bodily resurrection, that's the gospel. Is that what Paul says the gospel is? Say, yeah. That's what he just said. Forty days later, we have the ascension, the bodily ascension, where Jesus visibly goes back to where he came. Heaven, too, we're going to call it. And turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to talk about Zap from Zion just for a couple of minutes here. The ascension, not the resurrection. This is 40 days. Hey, Zach, this is 40 days after the resurrection. Jesus ascends back to heaven from the Mount of Olives. Is the Mount of Olives a real place? Yes, it is. It's actually a taller mountain than the, the, than Mount Moriah. That's, that's the Temple Mount. That's Jerusalem. That's the church built in the fourth century, which is exactly according to them where Jesus ascended from. It actually was actually over there, right there is where, there's some, some place there. We're not sure it's exactly on that spot. That's another traditional site we'll see. We don't know it's exactly on that spot, but it was from that mountaintop somewhere. But, uh, yeah, let's look at this. Just for lack of time, look at verses one through three and then drop down to verse six. The first account, you all know it is the Gospel of Luke. Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two. By Dr. Luke, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus personally in the flesh began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. What day was he taken up to heaven? On the ascension, right? That's when he was taken up to heaven. After he, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. What's this 40 days? 40 days, 40 nights? No, that's something else. That's the period from the resurrection to the ascension. How do we know it's 40 days? What passage should we go to in the New Testament to establish it's 40 days? Ephesians 2? No, I'd, say, I'd go with Acts 1 right right there. Right, uh, Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Drop down to verse 6. So when they came together on the Mount of Olives, just before the ascension, they're saying, Lord, okay, you've taken care of the lamb stuff. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Are you going to take over right now? They still want him to take over politically. They're like right now or yesterday would be better. And he said, don't worry about that. You're not going to know the exact timing of that. But what I want you to do is... The Holy Spirit's going to descend, the church age is going to start, and I want you to basically be my witnesses both at home and abroad, right? you got to love it, man. Uh, and he said that 2,000 years ago, uh, Michelle, in Israel, what are we doing today in Oklahoma? Talking about the resurrection ascension. So the word got out all over the world, didn't it? Um, you'll be my witnesses all over the place. And after he said these things, he was lifted up. Notice the... Um, uh, subtlety, just describing what they're seeing. They have no idea how this works, how you can do this. There aren't any wires. There's no mirrors. This is really happening. Supernatural ascension. He just goes straight up. He was lifted up while they were looking on in a cloud. I don't think it was a rain cloud. I think that's Shekinah glory. He's starting to express his Shekinah again, which has been veiled. Uh, received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky with their draw, jaws dropped, with their mouths wide open, uh, I mean, that would have blown, I just love that. Uh, two men in white. That's the way they look. They're angels. Luke's assuming you're smart enough to figure out they're angels. 
stood beside them. It's, it's not what it says, it's what it means by what it says. These aren't really people, they're angels, but they look like young men. He said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky with your mouths wide open? This same Jesus who was taken up from you bodily, visibly, into heaven, will come back in just the same way, visibly, bodily, supernaturally out of heaven, second advent, as you've seen him go into heaven. So the ascension, among other things, affirms the certainty of the literal second advent. Okay, So we're looking at history, the actual event described in Acts 1, but turn with me to Psalm 110. Let's look at a prophecy. And this is a mind-blower, man. you got to love this. In Psalm 110, written in about 1,000... Bailey, Psalm 110 was written in 1,000 B.C. That's 1,000 thousand and 33 years before the death and the resurrection of Jesus. David, writing Psalm 110, predicted the ascension of the Messiah and says that the Messiah is his God. Is that pretty good stuff? But nothing in the Old Testament lines up with the New Testament. Yeah, it does. Uh, this is the verse we want to focus on. Notice, the Lord, notice that's all caps, right? That's telling you we're talking about that special salvation name of God, here referring to God the Father. David, by the way, what does the superscription say? This isn't much the psalmist rest of it. This is a psalm written by David as a human author. Jesus in Matthew 22 says, David in the Spirit said this when he wrote Scripture. David did. But David is speaking under inspiration. He says, the Lord, God the Father, says to my, David's Adonai, that's the word for God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What event in the life of Christ um, establishes the fact that uh, heaven, what is what is the Messiah experience that kind of thing, where he, he comes to heaven and God the Father says, sit down until... We end history on our terms. It's the ascension. This is an Old Testament prophecy of the ascension of Christ. And you you got to love it, man. you got to love it. Um, look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Going from Psalm 110 to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm trying to say Psalms 110 instead of saying Psalm 110. Because one time your mother thought I was talking about Psalm 1. Verse 10, and she couldn't find it. There's only six verses in Psalm 1. So, I know what I mean, but when I say Psalm 110, I mean it's Psalm 110. But look at this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God the Father, Yahweh, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in the Old Testament, many portions, many ways, in these last days, in this generation as he's writing this, has spoken to us supremely in the person and work and teaching of his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through which also he made the world. In the beginning was the Word. The Word created everything. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of the Father's glory, of, of the glory of deity, the exact representation of God's nature. He's God in human form. Upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, after he paid for our sins and then ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's paraphrasing Psalm 110 there. He assumes you know that. Look at Hebrews 10. And I need a verse here. Yeah. Look at Hebrews 10.10. 10. 
By this will, we've all been positionally sanctified. That's the way Paul talks about justification, what Paul calls justification by faith. The writer of Hebrews, probably Apollos, calls positional sanctification through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Every priest in the temple stands present tense. So this is written before 70 AD when the temple is destroyed. Ministering and offering up these Old Testament sacrifices that were partial pointed and pointed to Christ. But they don't take away sins. But he, the Son of God, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice on the cross for sins for all time, quote unquote, sat down at the right hand of God. That's a citation from Psalm 110. Waiting until that time when the second advent happens, until he puts his enemies as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Go back to Acts 1. Yeah, the ascension assures us of a literal second advent and assures us that the payment of sin is complete and finalized and finished and that when Jesus comes back, he won't come back as a lamb. This time he'll come back as a lion. So take this to heart. Four Gospels, 26 major events, and now many of you can run that through your head. What's that worth to you? I'll clean out your head real quick. One Savior who is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life and forgiveness of sins for all who trust in him. And as the apostles said early in Acts, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, uh, you know, and he himself says, this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's better translated everlasting life. Eternal is both ends. That's God's everlasting is one way us. And I myself will raise him up in the last day. Is that an incredible promise? Talk about promises in the Bible. Just put your, put your name in the blank. This is the will of my father, that blessed Britain who has looked on the Son and believed in Him, has everlasting life, and Jesus Himself will raise her up on the last day. What's that worth to you? And that's incredible. That's, that's the whole thing. So I would say, rather than this just being a bunch of information, gnosis, let's make it epinosis, heart-transforming convictions. Uh, don't let your feelings, don't let your preferences, don't let other people, don't even let Pastor Brad be the guide for your Christian life. Let Jesus Christ be the guide. Let context be the guide for you when you study Scripture. And now you can read anything in the Gospels and know kind of where it fits into that A through Z thing. And it makes sense when Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this right now. Yeah, after the transfiguration, don't tell anybody until after I rise from the dead. Because anything like that is just going to add fuel to the fire because they're saying we're satanically possessed here. So stuff like that starts making sense. And I'm going to close in prayer. But the only thing I can say in response has already been said to all this wonderful truth. You may have heard this before. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, what he did on the cross, and righteousness, who he is. I dare not trust the sweetest, kindest, nicest-looking moral system frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, who and what he is. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood, when all around my soul gives way, he then is, as he always is, my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, we know it's going to happen because he ascended to heaven visibly, supernaturally. He's going to come back the same way to the same place, Mount of Olives. They're going to have to move the Church of the Ascension over. You know? uh, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, but to the one who does not work 
But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's your standing. First day, worst day, last day as a believer, if you're regenerate. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we give you praise, glory, and honor for your purposes in the plan of salvation. We thank you that you sent the Son. We thank you that he was willing to take that uh, role as the sendee, and you're the sender. We thank you for the way the Holy Spirit works worldwide, way beyond Campus Crusade for Christ, the Southern Baptist Convention, Dallas Theological Seminary, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, or Tanglewood Bible Fellowship, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and then to open eyes to see and believe. And we thank you that uh, we have a completely 100% solid, certain Savior, and through him a 100% certain salvation. And now help us to more consistently and enthusiastically apply all the implications of that as we live our lives, not just on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, but even on Monday morning and even on prom nights. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.